Let us pray. Father, you have appointed the times and places of our habitation that we might seek you and find you, though you are not far from us. Lord, it is your will, despite our free choices, that we are here this morning to hear the word of the Lord. And Father, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. God, we pray that you would allow your law, your word, to make us wiser than our enemies, for they are ever before us. And God, may you indeed, as the psalmist says, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to you and to your name be glory forever and ever because of your faithfulness and your love for us. So Lord, we ask you to speak to us today through the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. This morning's text is coming from the book of 2 Peter. We will be covering all of chapter 1. So 2 Peter, chapter 1. I remember the first time that I experienced a William Shakespeare play that was not one of the usual suspects that we most often are aware of, like Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet. I was in college when it occurred, and my roommate, whose name was Terry, was an English major, and he loved literature, and so he had introduced me to a Shakespearean play of which I had never heard of, never seen, and was completely unaware of. The name of the play is called Othello. Othello is a heroic general in the service of the city of Venice. And the play opens with two significant events that set the stage for everything that will follow throughout the whole play. The first is Othello's appointment of the soldier Cassio to the honorable position of being his chief lieutenant. And the second is his secret marriage to the Venetian noblewoman Desdemona. The promotion of Cassio angers Othello's fellow soldier Iago. And Othello's marriage to Desdemona springs forth envy and jealousy in the hearts of a nobleman named Rodrigo. So driven by selfish ambition, Iago masterfully plots an action, a course of action that he believes will enable him to destroy both Othello and Cassio. And throughout the play, we see Iago as one who is working in the shadows, if you will, sort of in the darkness, manipulating the strengths and weaknesses of those who are around him. He exploits, for example, Rodrigo's desire for Desdemona so as to use him to fuel doubts about Cassio in the mind of Othello. He leverages Cassio's desire to please Othello so as to deceive Othello into believing that Cassio was having an affair with Desdemona. He manipulates the kindness of Desdemona, Othello's wife, so as to sow seeds of doubt concerning her fidelity to her husband. And finally, he uses the blind trust and devotion that Othello has toward Iago himself 
in order to convince Othello that what he is seeing and hearing is best understood in light of an infidelity between Cassio and Desdemona. So if you've seen any Shakespearean plays, you kind of know how this ends. So accepting Iago's deceptive plan of truth, Othello is then filled with anger and contempt, particularly for his wife. He then murders her while she lies in bed. Now, as a Shakespearean tragedy would have it, Othello finds out. He, uh, he discovers what has happened. He sees the deception that Iago has done and yet is filled with grief now that his wife is dead. Unable to deal with such a tragedy, Othello then stabs himself falls on the bed next to his wife and says, I kissed thee ere I killed me, no way but this, killing myself to die upon a kiss. That is a tragedy. Accepting Iago's elaborate plan, the tragedy is here that the, this whole entire tragedy is precipitated by one man, that's Iago. He is a man, make note of this, that is among them. He is a man who is feasted with them. He is a man whom no one, including in this play his own wife, suspects of such deceitful things. In fact, throughout the whole play, Othello refers to him as trusted Iago. But make note of this, just as Othello faced a and Iago, the church of Jesus Christ faces one today, too, and they are called false teachers. Second Peter 2 says that they will be among us, that they will feast with us. They may even appear to be trustworthy, but yet, like Iago, they manipulate the goodness of the people of God in order to bring them to godless ends. So what is the church to do? More importantly, how does the local church prevent the tragedy of an Othello happening to her? It is this very issue that I believe Peter is seeking to address in this letter. Now, the occasion that prompts Peter to write this letter can be found in chapter 2. Peter is writing to the churches in what is today modern-day Turkey and warning them about false teachers, and he spends all of chapter 2 describing their behavior and their subsequent judgment. These false teachers were teaching that the doctrine of Christ's second coming and final judgment was not true doctrine. Now, it is important to note here that the letter does not appear that the false teachers were denying the essential nature of of Jesus Christ like we see in 1 John. Nor does it appear that they were denying salvation by grace as we see Paul addressing in the book of Galatians. No, here it is likely that they may have even believed those things. However, Peter makes it clear that their denial of the second coming of Jesus and the final judgment was an effort for them to justify and defend living a life of sexual pleasure that was more 
endemic of their culture than it was actually influenced by biblical morality. So Peter is clear in chapter 2 in verse 1 about the result of such ways when he says that they are bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Likewise, will it be for anyone who follows them? Now, the title of this sermon this morning is How to Avoid the Tragic Decline and Disappearance of the Local Church. Now, notice I did not say the church universal. For Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. The church shall always exist. He will ensure that. However, no such promise is given to every single local church. One only has to read what Jesus says to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, to see that this is the case when Jesus says to them, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So how then does the local church avoid this tragic decline and disappearance? Well, I believe Peter answers this question in his letter, and the answer is simple. It is in verse 2 and in chapter 3, verse 18, where Peter tells his readers that they are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the use of this phrase in the opening and closing of the book introduces what we call in literary structure an inclusio. It's kind of like a set of bookends, if you will. Now, this serves as a cue for the reader. And the reader is to know that all the material that will be covered between the inclusio refers to the inclusio itself. So in other words, what Peter is doing here is covering what we are to do to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that we will not suffer the same fate as that of the false teachers. So how does the church avoid the tragic decline and disappearance that the false teachers will experience. There are four things I want to go over today with you out of chapter one. The first is to grow, we must behold our source of authority. Chapter one, verses one and two. The second is to grow, we must understand our granted salvation. Chapter one, verses three through four. Third, to grow, we must work out our granted salvation, chapter 1, verses 5 through 15. And lastly, to grow, we must believe the sufficiency of Scripture, chapter 1, 16 through 21. So first, <clears throat> to grow, we must behold our source of authority. Look at verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, I want you to notice here the construction that Peter uses to describe himself. 
he describes himself with two words, servant and apostle. Now, this term servant is an expression for a person who is totally owned by another who has authority over them. So what we see here is Peter acknowledging a reality. And the reality is this. The truth is, we didn't make anything. God created everything. Everything belongs to him. They may rebel against that, but we did not make ourselves come into existence. Creation didn't snap here on our word. It came by the word of God. And the truth is that God owns everything, including us. But you see here, Peter willingly and joyfully acknowledges this reality. This is not a problem for him. He is not angry about this. He is not disappointed by this reality. He joyfully accepts this fact. Furthermore, in the first century, a servant was known also as one who was a representative. Right? So, so think about this for a moment. A servant of Caesar, say the emperor, for example, was seen as somebody who was a representative of Caesar himself. So if Caesar sent his servant with a message and that messenger was treated with contempt, then that is an act against Caesar himself because the servant is seen as a representative of his master. So we see here that Peter is recognizing that he is a servant, one who is owned, and he is a representative of the master Jesus. Not only does he call himself a servant here, he calls himself an apostle. So the term here is used in some context to refer to missionaries or messengers. But here in this letter, Peter is more specifically using the technical term that describes those who Jesus called and appointed to serve as apostles, upon whom the teaching of the church would be built. Now, this is not the first time we see the hint of what we call apostolic authority in this letter. In chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 2, Peter equates the apostolic teaching with scriptural commands that have been given to them by Jesus. In chapter 2, verses 3, 15 through 16, Peter holds a high estimate of Paul and his writings and associates that apostle's writings with Scripture as well. So in summary here, Peter is rightly viewing himself as one who has been created by God, who is owned by God. Furthermore, that Peter is a servant and apostle. He is Christ's representative sent to his people to tell them precisely what the master has said. So... To reject Peter, therefore, is not to reject Peter. It is to reject the Lord himself. Notice Peter's description of his master. This is astounding. He calls him our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the grammatical construction you see here clearly indicates two things about Jesus. He is God. And he is Savior. 
In John 1, we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son, sent from the Father. Who is he talking about? Jesus. In 1 John 4, we, hear, we see John say, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So he is God and Savior, but notice what this master does as God and Savior for us. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The master makes his servants righteous. Now, you may be here today and have never heard this. So I'm, I'm going to just briefly explain a few things so that this makes sense. We all know meaning everyone on the planet, including everyone that has ever lived, that we need to be righteous. We demonstrate this by the following. Number one, humanity has always demonstrated some sort of obedience to some moral code. Right? So in other words, they say, if I do this, I'm good. If I do that, I'm bad. What are they trying to accomplish by being good? They want to be righteous. We demonstrate this also by our efforts to sort of justify or condemn others. So, for example, we might say, well, I didn't do anything wrong. Or we might say, well, that guy did something wrong and he should be punished for that. What are we saying? We are saying, I know I must be righteous. And we are also saying, unrighteousness deserves to be punished. We may not like that, but it is our reality. The evidence that we are not righteous is overwhelming. I'm reminded of a man who once said, there is no doctrine in Scripture that is more empirically verifiable than the doctrine. Well, that's not true, but he just said that. Um, he said it, that is empirically verifiable, other that, like the doctrine of depravity, the sinfulness of man, but yet one that is no more intellectually resisted. We try to explain this away, but the reality is we know we need to be righteous. We know it. Everybody knows it. The Bible tells us that sin came into the world through one man, our humanity's original parents from whom all of us descend. And death through sin and so death spared all men was spread to all men because all have sinned. But it also says this, this is where it gets good. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which is a satisfaction, that condemnation we know we deserve, by his blood to be received by faith. Now, why does he do this? But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why does he do this? Because he loves us. Because he doesn't want to condemn you. He wants to save you. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, 
enters our world, takes the punishment we know we deserve for not being righteous, and then by faith in him, he makes us righteous because he loves us. Now notice who receives this righteousness. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Peter is talking about these same people. You have an equal standing. We see here that Peter is seeing who sees himself as one who is willfully and joyfully owned by Jesus. In addressing these people, it is those who are not in rebellion to the master, but rather who turn from their sin by faith and trust him to be willfully and joyfully owned by him. It is accepting the reality of what is true of all of us. Again, there is, the evidence is overwhelming. We know we're not righteous, but he makes us righteous. Now, our culture does not like the word authority. That has become a bad, bad word. But try as we may to escape it, we are all under authority of things outside of ourselves. It could be things just as simple as created things, like gravity, the need for food and water, and oxygen. You can't simply look at those things and say, I don't need you. I can live my life without you. To deny their authority over us is to deny ourselves life. Likewise, to deny God's authority over us in Christ is also to reject life. How do we avoid the tragic decline and disappearance of the local church? The first thing we got to do is we must grow in beholding our source of authority. Secondly, to grow, we must understand our granted salvation. Look at verse 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of simple desire. I got to be honest with you, this section has caused me many a night sweats. I do not know how on earth to summarize this. It is so rich. But somebody told me not to go over 50 minutes. So I'm going to really try to shorten this and make sense of it. Notice here that our loving master in making us righteous has given us a divine provision. Notice how it is given to us. It is granted. It's something that is bestowed from someone who has to someone who has not. It is the idea of from one greater to one lesser. It is indeed an act of grace. What have we been granted by this righteousness? He says here, we've been granted life and godliness. Now, this word life, given the context of what Peter is talking about here in this section, refers, we're talking specifically about regeneration, refers to the notion of eternal life. We may know 
the Father. We may be in his presence. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, what? By me. We can come to him. We can be with our Father. Secondly, the word godliness, given the context that Peter is using here, refers to this ex exhibit, if you will, of this righteousness that has been received. It is godly character. In short, if we are servants, we are to represent the master, which means we should be like him. And Jesus, by faith in him and giving us his righteousness, has given us all that we need to do that. All that we need for it. Now, notice here, it is important to note that life and godliness are two linked realities that the divine power has granted us. One cannot have one without the other. One cannot have eternal life and not have godliness. Eternal life is just not merely living in bliss. It is having a transformed life here and now. One cannot live like the devil and say that they know the master. They are not his representative. Life and godliness go together. Notice here we've also been granted to escape from the corruption that is in the world because of simple desire. Now we said this just a minute ago. Where we know that the world that ourselves that is unrighteous and we're held captive to that we can't change that we try to that's why we make all the effort but here through Christ he delivers us from that by faith in him and this righteousness that he gives us we are then able to be free from our sin and from sinful desires now how is this divine power granted Notice it says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Now notice the way the argument unfolds here. We are granted life and godliness. How is that granted? Through the knowledge of him who called us. Who calls? He calls. He pursues us. He came down from heaven to pursue us. Who calls here? I think the contextually here, we, we need to understand that this is Jesus. But look how the call goes out. It is not through some trumpet, and it is not through some neat movie. It is through the knowledge of him. It is through the knowledge of Christ himself that calls us. If one is not called to the knowledge of Christ, it's not Christ that they know. It's not life and godliness that they have obtained here. But notice here that that call through the knowledge of Christ is to something. It says we are called to his glory and excellence. So this reference here is to divine moral goodness, if you will, and sort of the beauty of our transformation. So Jesus calls us out of corruption to be transformed to be a servant that represents him. In other words, we are like him. 
Notice that he does so by which he is granted, because of this, by which he has granted us his precious and great promises. So as believers come to know Christ in his glory and excellence, they become, they inherit God's promises. Now notice what the emphasis is here is on the results of what happens. What is the result of that? It's that we become partakers of the divine nature. We get to enjoy God's glorious love and joy through the scriptures that testify of Jesus. Now I want you to ask yourself, what do people want? What do they really want? Why do we pursue what we pursue? Because we want joy. We want love. Where does that come from? Is it just ethereal in the air? No, it comes from God himself. And he offers himself to us that we may enjoy that. Can you imagine the eternal God giving his great love to us? So this righteousness that we have is imparted to us by faith. It transforms us. By, through Christ, and we enjoy the presence of Christ as a result. So we don't need Jesus plus anything for godliness. I hope you believe that. We don't need Jesus plus what social media evangelists have to say. We don't need Jesus plus every academian and their highfalutin stuff that they like to postulate. No, we need only Jesus for life and godliness. He has provided everything we need for it. How do we avoid the tragic decline and disappearance of the local church? We must grow in our understanding of our granted salvation. Thirdly, to grow, we must work out our granted salvation. Notice he says here in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice how Peter begins this section. For this very reason. What reason? Everything he's just said. Because of this master who has come in his great love to make those who will recognize it and receive it righteous. Because of this, let us make every effort to supplement. Now this word, this phrase, make every effort, is what you think it is. It is making effort. <laughs> it's placing significant amount of effort to accomplish a task. What the word supplement here from Gene Green's Greek scholar said is a term that is commonly refers to acts of generous benefaction displayed toward individuals or communities. 
Peter calls his readers to imitate the character of a good person who is a benefactor. They are to make a good, noble investment in the ascendancy of moral virtue. So a benefactor has, has resources, and they make that investment. Likewise, we have been given a resource. What is that? That resource is the righteousness, the salvation, the divine provision that has been granted to us. But we don't earn that divine provision. That is very clear. It is obtained by faith in Jesus. He gives that to us. But we are given a gift that we then must do something with. What are we to do? We're to produce things. These are very similar, if you will, to Paul's list in Galatians 5 of the fruit of the Spirit. Peter says we're to produce virtue. Now, this is the same word that he uses for excellence in verse 3 that describes Jesus' character. So what Peter is saying here, we need to become more like Christ. We need to put effort to become more and more like our master. He says knowledge here. Now, given the way that the letter is written and what Peter is referring to often when he says that, he's referring to the knowledge of Jesus. Self-control. We are to have dominion, control over our appetites, our habits, our passions, if you will. Steadfastness. We are to persevere. We are to not quit. In Romans 5, Paul talks about how God uses perseverance to produce things in our lives. But that production doesn't happen from perseverance. It happens because the love of God has been put in our hearts. The love of God is the source that produces fruit when effort occurs. We don't produce effort to get the source. We're granted that by faith. So we have this gift of salvation that we're to do stuff with, steadfastness, godliness, living a life that displays God's character. That's the way it's being used here. Brotherly affection, a term used to describe the love for fellow believers. And love, which is what Paul even uses in 1 Corinthians 13 as being sort of the greater thing to pursue. It is the love of God. We're to grow in these things. Now, notice in verse 9, there's a warning for those who lack this. See, a failure to work out this salvation and produce fruit demonstrates a failure to see what they should see. He says they are blind, they are nearsighted. That what are they failing to see? That those who live ungodly lives show no evidence. We heard this last week, right, when Gabe preached out of Philippians, right? I hope that was it. Yeah. I didn't write it down, so I didn't have it down there. But that was what Gabe was talking about last week. So if they don't produce fruit, it is evidence that they haven't received this great salvation. That's what Peter is saying here. Now notice here in verses 12 through 15, the seriousness of which Peter is teaching here. Now I'm not going to read this section. Denny read this earlier today in our New Testament reading. But I want to just highlight and point some things out to you here. Now, the way this is written, it's kind of like a farewell address. It's kind of like, hey, I'm going off. Before I leave, let me tell you something that's really important in case you never hear from me again. That's what's going on here. Peter is appealing to them about everything that he has just said 
about growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Five times in this section, he refers to the mind and action and thinking of the mind, meditating. He uses words like remind, know, think, reminder, recall. He does this two more times in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, where he says again, remind, remember. Two times in this section, he mentions the importance of the frequency. He says, I intend always to remind you, you that you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter intends for us to constantly be reminded uh, that we must behold our source of authority, that we need to understand this granted salvation, and we need to work it out, or we decline and disappear. So about a year ago, I made a decision, once again, as a result of a sermon that our beloved brother Gabe preached a year ago. I left church that day extremely challenged about meditating and memorizing scripture. So I got home, I picked up my phone, and I called Tom Schoolberg. And I said, Tom, I need help. I want to start getting better at this. Why don't you help me and start meeting with me? This is the ultimate form of Christian pure pressure. Tom gladly obliged. And what Tom and I did for the next this last year is we memorized, we met weekly at first, and then it ended up being bi-weekly because of our schedules, but we memorized all of Psalm 119 in Proverbs chapter 1 through 3. That is 266 verses, 4,020 words. Now, I'm not saying that to brag. What I want to tell you is this. I have noticed that it has increased my virtue that it has increased my knowledge, my self-control, my steadfastness, my godliness, my brotherly affection, and my love in life. Why? Because I'm meditating. I'm understanding this granted salvation, and I'm putting effort to understand it. And as a result, these things are happening in my life. And I knew that would be the case because I saw it happen in Gabe's life. And I wanted to do more of that. And I want to encourage you to do the same. To grow, we must work out our granted salvation. And finally, to grow, we must believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Verses 16 through 21, Peter refers to the, all of this. Now, again, I'm not going to read all of this. It was read earlier today by Denny. But what I just do want to do is point out a few things. Peter says here, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now notice this phrase, cleverly devised myths. Now this word, it, it's associated essentially with fictive tales that did not reflect the truth of history. So for example, a Greek myth could be an entertaining tale, it might even perhaps teach you some principle about life, but it's not true. It didn't really happen. The Lord of the Rings, I love the Lord of the Rings. Guess what? It's not real. It didn't happen. I'm sorry. I'm coming after you Potter people next. <laughs> the Harry Potter series. Once again, 
it didn't happen. It's a myth. Marvel's Avengers. Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, Falcon, and all the others are not around. They are a myth. They may have taught us some important things. Great. But they are not real. Peter here is saying we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Jesus is not like Captain America. Jesus is real and we have seen him. We beheld him. Notice he says we twice here. Peter again is referring here to the apostolic witness. We. Right? The apostles always appealed to eyewitness testimony. For example, 1 John, the apostle says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. Notice all this language here. We've seen, we've heard, we've looked upon, we've touched it. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify it to you. Captain America, no one has ever seen unless they're really strange, right? This just doesn't happen. But Jesus was real, and he came, and he did these things. The apostles' eyewitness is also confirmed by other eyewitnesses. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, for example, how many people saw Jesus after his resurrection? More than 500 do you know this is indisputable evidence that people generally, they seriously try to say, to explain away that these all, all these people were on acid somehow and had a hallucination. They don't deny the historical reality of it. They just don't like the message that comes when they realize that this is true. But Jesus is real. We're not, he's telling us here, we're not proclaiming something to you that's not real. We're proclaiming something to you that really happened. But he notches it up even more in verse 19. In verse 19, he says, but we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed here. So Peter is pointing out that what the apostles and eyewitnesses saw concerning Jesus, not only was it real and truly happened, but it was also prophesied in the scriptures to happen as they saw it happen. Now, how is that possible? The Old Testament is filled with the prophecy of the coming of Messiah before it ever happens. We have 39 books written over 1,000 years that contain hundreds of prophecies, and all of a sudden, this guy shows up, and he fulfills them. This is real, what Peter is saying. This is true, for we did not follow we're not following a myth. We're following what's true. This is reality. Now he says, for. This is a conjunction. He's essentially connecting everything he's saying to hear what he previously said. In other words, why should we behold our authority? Why should we understand this granted salvation? Why should we work out this salvation? Because Jesus and his message is not a tale. He's not Captain America, Aragorn, or Harry Potter. He is God and Savior, and it is true. That's why. Now, do you believe 
that terrorists flew into the two towers on September 11, 2001? If you do, why? Do you believe that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941? Why? You believe it because the eyewitness account is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. To deny it, we know we would be crazy. Peter says here, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is a word that was written beforehand by God through men, and it came true. Now, this is far more certain than any historical event. Nobody prophesied 9-11. Nobody prophesied December 7th. Nobody prophesied the invasion of Normandy. Nobody prophesied anything. This was told beforehand, and it happened. So why should we do everything that we've heard in chapter 1? Because the overwhelming evidence is that God has demonstrated that Jesus Christ through the testimony of the scriptures, is real, and that Peter, his apostle, is bringing us a true message to which we would do well to pay attention. If a local church stops believing in the sufficiency of scripture, keep this, it will no longer behold its source of authority. It will no longer understand its granted salvation. And it will no longer work out its granted salvation. And it will suffer the tragic decline and disappearance of the local church. You know, the tragedy of Othello is sadly happening far and wide in our evangelical world today. False teachers have come in among us, they feasted with us, they even claimed to believe the same doctrines as us, but have crept in, and like Iago, they are not in pursuit of our good, but rather of our harm. It is sensuality that they want. You know, the interesting thing about Iago's deceptive plan to destroy Othello is not is that no one person was really aware of the whole plan until after it happened. His elaborate plan was broken into parts. One part Rodrigo, one part Cassio. One part Desdemona, one part Othello. But each character's part, make note of this, those separate actually influences one another. And when you put all that together, you have a tragedy. Likewise, the enemy of God and his people has an equally elaborate plan. One with many, many parts. One part doctrinal compromise. One part redefinition of sex and gender compromise. One part priority to other disciplines like psychology or sociology, compromise. One part man manipulation of biblical notions of justice or of love, compromise. 
These parts, those separate, they influence and feed one another. And as all these parts come together, what you have is the tragic decline and disappearance of the local church. So how do we do avoid that? Well, Peter tells us. We are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, just as the tragedy has many parts to contribute to its conclusion, so too does a great success. And I would urge us here at Kenwood to commit ourselves to the parts that are necessary for the great success of the local church. What are they? We need to behold our source of authority, and we need to grow in it. We need to grow by believing in the sufficiency of Scripture. We need to grow by working out our granted salvation. We need to grow by understanding our granted salvation. We need to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that you warn the churches. But that in your warning, you are not simply offering condemnation, but life. You are offering the way to life. And we pray that you would help us to hear these words this morning and walk that narrow road. That we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.